1: Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sims. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week, we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies.
2: In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of Blank Checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects.
1: Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby.
2: We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello
3: there, it's Jameela Jamil. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farren, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The year is 1994, and suddenly everybody wants a job as a video store clerk. The movie? Pulp Fiction. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson, and Paul Shear will be joining us in just a second because we are going to be talking about pulp fiction. But as you know, this is the show where we go through every film on the AFI Top 100 list to talk about how it holds up today, what we make of it, how it was made, go through the whole spiel with you so we can talk about the films that make our culture. Last week, Paul and I got into the movie Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton as a couple that drinks a lot. Yells a lot and (laughs) makes a movie that seemed somewhat polarizing uh, to the listeners. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people were like, mommy and daddy are fighting. I cannot take this. Make it stop. Make it stop. Make it stop. Make it stop. It was really interesting reading everybody's thoughts on the movie, including the people who have actually staged their own productions of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Because there's a lot in here to break apart and think about and analyze, including, you know, to me, the thing that I had the biggest problem with, which is just the twist at the end that Elizabeth Taylor cannot have children. And some people had theories on that that I actually really, really appreciated, to try to wrap it in, take it to the next level of metaphor. And I was kind of sold. Thank you for that. We also threw out the question, if we remade Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf today, which now that I'm thinking about it, they should just be vaping the whole time, right? They wouldn't even be drinking this much. Nobody drinks this much anymore, do they? I don't know anybody who does. But if we did it today, what celebrity couple should star in it, you know? Is there somebody married? a subject of fascination who could pull off this movie the same way that Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton did. Here's some suggestions we got that I thought were kind of fun. What about Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen? There's also Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, or Jennifer Connelly and Paul Bettany. There's also Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz. Now that one I find intriguing. Kermit and Piggy? All right, I'm open. Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem? Yes. Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith? Double yes. Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally? Yep, quadruple yes. Kim and Kanye, you really think she can act? Come on. (laughs) Nick and Megan were actually the runaway number one pick, which I was like, hey, good taste, y'all. As for me, I'm a little tackier and more into erotic energy, so I said Sofia Vergara and Joe Manganiello. Because why not? Let's do it. Let's do it. I think he'd look really good in glasses and like a little Tweety sweater. And now let's move to our movie of the week, Pulp Fiction. We do not have a guest for this episode, but if you really want to hear Quentin Tarantino talk, a dream guest, well, I've got good news for you, because I just launched a three-part miniseries for The Ringer called Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation, Rice I sat down with him for a long time, and we talked about a lot, including his childhood, including his movies, including everything. It's a really fun show, if I do say so myself, so if you want to hear him talk for a while, we got all three episodes of that launching this week. Now, for our special listener call on this episode, we asked you guys, what is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase? Here's what you thought.
2: What's in the mystery briefcase?
3: The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Not to be too political, but maybe it's President Trump's tax returns. I think they open up the suitcase and
2: inside of it is a box of wine. Redemption. It's Willy Wonka's golden ticket, of course. The headless remains of Gwyneth Peltow. Oh, fuck. So what's in the briefcase is two tickets to the 2020 Western Conference Finals, Lakers versus Clippers at Staples Center. It's whatever meatloaf won't do for love.
0: (laughs) Okay, all those answers are answers very much after my own heart and some of the only things I would ever go on a, a, a bloody chase through Los Angeles for... Especially the meatloaf. Come on. And now, let's get Paul in here and get on with the show. The year is
2: 1994, and for the first time ever, Americans are watching Friends. They're using their George Foreman grills. And more than half of them are wearing a wonder bra. Lisa Marie marries Michael Jackson only 20 days after her divorce to Danny Kehoe. McDonald's is sued for their too hot coffee. Nancy Kerrigan places second in the Olympics despite getting her knee smashed in by the competition. And due to a strike, no one wins the World Series. 95 million Americans watch the infamous Bronco car chase following the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. This year, Kurt Cobain, John Candy, Richard Nixon, and Jeffrey Dahmer all pass. The big popular shows on television, Jerry Springer, Frasier, and The Late Show with David Letterman. People are listening to Sting, Sheryl Crow, and the Beastie Boys, and the movies of the year are big. We're talking about Dumb and Dumber, The Lion King, and Speed, but it's also a huge year for the AFI list because this is the year that Forrest Gump, The Shawshank Redemption, and the film that we're talking about today, Pulp Fiction, comes out. That's right, Pulp Fiction comes in at number 94 on the 2007 AFI list, a mere point from its 1995 standing in 1998. Amy, Pulp Fiction. Who's in it? What's it about?
0: Pulp Fiction. It is the second film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino with Roger Avery. It stars a whole bunch of people. You got Bruce Willis. You got Samuel L. Jackson. You got a career resurrecting performance from John Travolta. You got Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Uma Thurman, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Ving Rames, Christopher Walken. You got everybody. You even got a little bit of Kathy Griffin in here. This movie is everything. And the plot is a series of interconnecting vignettes. Hitmen, boxers, really morbid taxi drivers, uh, leaders of dangerous gangs, uh, all interconnected with the tone that is set up by the opening title card, defining what pulp is. Either A, a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter, or B, a magazine or book containing lurid subject matter and being characteristically printed. I would say that this film is not moist and shapeless. I would say it is very sharp and defined and put together like, I don't know, a collage of post-it notes. What would you say?
2: It's a rare movie that is told out of order, but if it was put in chronological order, I still think it holds up as a compelling film.
0: Yeah. I think what's interesting about the out of order thing is it means I never really remember what scene comes next every Mm. time I watch it, but I know every scene so well. Every scene is like baked into my bones. The dialogue feels baked into my bones. I think that Pulp Fiction was the first screenplay I ever bought because it was like a best-selling paperback screenplay, which is also kind of insane on its own merits. And I was probably too young to be reading the screenplay, but I had it and I read it incessantly. And I was like, oh, this is how a movie works. I had the soundtrack. I listened to the soundtrack all the time. Every time I heard a song on this movie again, I was like, I know every word of this. I know every lyric of this. This soundtrack is in my bones. And hearing the dialogue just feels like going back to who I am, in a way. But at the same time, this was never who I really was. This was aspirational to me. Like, I had to look up so much of what he talks about here. This is not my world. And I felt like watching this film was like being given, like, imagine, you know, I'm an only child, but imagine I had an older brother, right, who disappeared before I was born. And he left behind this diary of everything he loved. That's what Pope Fiction was to me. And I was of that generation, you know, the way that I feel like I'm Generation X, even though I'm kind of not Generation X. I just wanted to be it and I wanted to aspire to it and I learned everything about it and I tracked down all the references. And then now that I'm older and I know film, I'm able to watch it with eyes of even understanding more. Because here I just only got the stuff he specifically called out. He was like, hey, Green Acres. And now that I'm older, I'm able to say like, oh, that ending shoot off style with all the guns pointed at each other in the diner. That's him saying how much he loves Leone, which I wouldn't have known at the time because he didn't say so.
2: Yeah, I'm right there with you. But I think Quentin Tarantino represented this uncool filmmaker. I mean, he was very cool, but he was a nerd. He was, you know, worked in a video store. He had this passion. He talked really quickly. He wanted to share with you all the things that he loved and i think when you talk about all these 90s filmmakers whether it's you know Robert Rodriguez or Kevin Smith or Paul Thomas Anderson or even uh, Wes Anderson like these are filmmakers that are saying here's all these weird things that i like and now i'm going to give them to you it was like going over a cool friend's house and them showing you something that you've never seen before and that's how i kind of felt about this movie and, and even though it's a film i haven't watched in years when I rewatched it, it felt like, oh, I could quote every line. I knew every music cue. And it, it brings me back to the fact that this was my Hamilton in the sense that I was playing these CDs all the time wherever I was going. I, was, I wasn't listening to any other music. I was listening to Quentin Tarantino soundtracks with those amazing audio clips cut in. It felt so cool.
0: Yeah, although I think what makes Quentin Tarantino so complex to wrestle with is he is a nerd, but he's a nerd who really wants to be cool, and he's a nerd who is therefore made cool through his films. And there's always been something I find kind of endearing and a little embarrassing about watching watching what it's like to be Quentin Tarantino, watching what it's like to be a guy who never had a girlfriend when he wrote the script for True Romance, suddenly be like the coolest guy on the entire planet. And nobody could deal with that well, and I don't think he dealt with it especially well. And it kind of makes me love him a little bit more and also be a little more nervous about him at in equal parts. You know, I give, I give so many of the 70s guys such a hard time, so many of the people who voted on the AFI list such a hard time for loving the stuff that they found revolutionary and not getting past the fact that we don't need it anymore. So watching this film now, I was trying to really be consciously aware of that. I was trying really hard to not let that, Influenced me when I rewatch this, and I'm trying to notice things like, God, I really do hate some of the cinematography in here. I really do hate the way they light people so that th- when light hits people's cheeks here, it just sort of blows it out. It looks invisible. Like you could just sort of walk right through it. It's too bright. It's too bright. And it drives me nuts.
2: Well, you know, I noticed something else. I noticed kind of how much Quentin Tarantino has grown. Because when you open up this movie, it's on this Tim Roth monologue. And that uh, is a great monologue, but it's very much a Quentin Tarantino monologue. You could see Quentin Tarantino basically doing every role in this movie. And as a matter of fact, I feel like as he was pitching it, he was doing every role. And and now as I've watched more of his films, he's gotten away from it. The characters, I think, stand on their own two feet a little bit more. I mean, it's always a sensibility. But these are monologues that... If you were friends with Quentin Tarantino around this time, he probably shared these thoughts with you, you know, and he was in Amsterdam writing the script. That's why Vincent Vega just got back from Amsterdam. He has a point of view about that.
0: He's from Knoxville. That's why Bruce Willis's character wants to go back to
1: Knoxville.
2: Yeah. So I think there's a real interesting thing to see about him as a filmmaker here. Here's somebody who starts off very personal and now we know where he goes and, you know, from 1993 or 94 or whatever to 2019, he's really grown as this filmmaker and challenges himself. He hasn't made this movie 10 times, but this movie is the Quentin Tarantino movie that I feel like has to be on the list because not only is it, you know, this movie that kind of just resets what we know of movies from the 90s on. But I also think it has the most iconic moments of a Quentin Tarantino film, right?
0: The way that you're describing how there's so much of Tarantino only in this film and not other points of view makes me think of our conversation about Vertigo. Like, do we love Vertigo because it is the most Hitchcock? Because we right. see all of Hitchcock's tells? Because I feel like there are so many Quentin Tarantino tells in this movie that we now know. I didn't know that bare feet was a tell. No, I know the bare feet is a tell. Right. But the bare feet are here. You know, there's this love for name-checking TV shows. There's this love for everything in this movie that feels the most him, even though I agree, I think he's become a better and better and better filmmaker. And part of me wishes I could make a more compelling argument for his later films being on the list instead of Pulp Fiction, because I think they are terrific. I think he shows more control. I think they're more beautiful. Here in Pulp Fiction I see him still kind of leaning on shock value. Whereas I think he knows what he wants his shock value to be in his later films. I think he's like, any shock, it's a dart to your heart. You're going to love it. And now he's like, you're going to be expecting this, and I'm going to give you this. And it's a crueler, more calculating shock. And I admire that.
2: I hear that, but I think what I'm also kind of surprised at is I remember this movie being more violent or more shocking than it was. And it's really a movie of monologues. I mean, you're really introducing all these characters, and you're letting them interact with each other. I have a theory on these characters I want to kind of bring up to you in a little bit, but I was surprised at how it really was a character piece, more than just a bloodbath. And I think that oftentimes, when you think of Quentin Tarantino, you think of blood and people getting punched in the face, but here it, it punctuates moments it, you know, the head getting shot in the car, you know, and even the scene where, you know, Ving Rhames' character is getting raped, It's a violent scene, but it's not overtly violent. It's not Kill Bill in any way.
0: I mean, in some ways, I find the violence in Pulp Fiction more shocking than the violence in Kill Bill because it's done without any sort of a huge emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. You know, Marvin getting his head blown off in the back of the car is basically like a good joke. Right. You know, and it just kind of continues on and there's no guilt and there's no shame and there's no even a moment of audience, like horrified reaction of misery. It's more just like... The way it works is almost like it hits your funny bone. And then you're like, whoa, I'm laughing at that. Oh, I feel awful. And I'm laughing.
2: But do you think now we've become immune to what was so kind of revolutionary about this film? Like, I enjoy this film so much. But you can see a joke like that Marvin thing now on AMC. You know, it's it's the Quentin Tarantino like, tentacles have gotten so far into our system that this movie doesn't feel extreme at all. Maybe I'm misremembering it, or my memory of it was, it was so extreme. But now watching, I'm like, oh, no, it still holds up. It's still really good, but it's not as extreme anymore because our culture has kind of absorbed it. We've just kind of absorbed the Quentin Tarantino influence.
0: Yeah, I mean, I still, to me personally, I still find the lack of reaction extreme. Actually, I think I find it more extreme than I did at the time. Really? I mean, I think I didn't even really realize how bad it was when Marcellus gets raped because, I mean, A, it was like kind of just so dumb and it didn't really occur to me, but B, because the film doesn't seem to think it's that, 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 that bad. It's its deliverance homage, which I also didn't get at the time. And it just carries on.
2: And but it's not I think- played with the weight of deliverance. And I think that's a very calculated point of view. This movie is light. It is like the definition at the top of the film. It's pulpy it's it is told at certain points for shock value you're in the seedy underbelly of LA but it's these characters seem to exist fine in that world you know even when Bruce Willis you know kills Vincent Vega he doesn't seem like too even shocked by it it's it's not like he's gonna have nightmares about that like they're all kind of just these you know This is the way the world works kind of a thing. I think that that's an interesting, like, tonally, that's what I think makes this movie so fun. Because you could make a version of this movie that's way darker. I mean, we've seen that marcellus wallace rape scene be way darker you know
0: i guess that's my brain is i find the lightness of it in a way to be way darker than if it was way darker
2: does Mm. that make sense no i definitely hear that and i'm
0: not saying that it's wrong for playing it light like i as a stylistic choice i get it it's a game you know it's moving all the pieces forward we love vincent vega when he gets shot we love him and the movie is not sad about it the movie just keeps going
1: Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can. Or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella the busiest man or Irving Sardinas. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow. Okay. Well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow. I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do. And Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Ruba. They should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Brou-ba-go-doo. Yes, Bruba Go Do. That's right, Bruba Go Do.
0: It does feel that this film takes place in an unreality. Don't you think? I mean, this is a movie where there are gunshots everywhere, and nobody is ever that worried about the cops. They might say they're a little bit worried, but the cops are never really a factor. Even the dude who bursts into Zed and Maynard, even that guy, he's a security guard. He's not really a cop. Cops don't seem to exist in this hyper-violent Los Angeles. And I was thinking about that, and I also noticed that, you know, in that scene where Bruce Willis gets in the taxi driver with the macabre, very hot taxi driver, the person doesn't really exist— what you see in the back through the car is this rear projection, like we're used to. I swear, maybe I'm going crazy, but the rear projection is black and white. It's not even pretending to look natural. It's not even pretending to look like it's reality.
2: Well, it's interesting because it's the same kind of rear projection that he uses for the heroin sequence when John Travolta is driving. It's like it's interesting they do the night scenes in that way, but yet when they're doing the kind of the, the most famous opening scene when they're both in the car talking about Royale with cheese, that is you know, that's real world. They're just, you know, they're on a rig. They're going down, you know, the real street. Yeah, um, when they
0: get out and then they frame them from the trunk in that all blue background, they just look, so, they look like icons. They come into yeah. the film like icons.
2: It is interesting that you kill this character and you you lose track of characters. Like Sam Jackson's character really is this, you know, you come off of this amazing scene with him where I think this character that Sam Jackson plays here defines this next half of Sam Jackson's career. Because if you look at his work before this, he isn't that type of guy. And even when you watch this performance, it's a slower Sam Jackson. It's, it has, I don't know, a little bit more subtlety than sometimes when you see him in movies doing, you know, quote unquote, a Sam Jackson performance. I love it. I will see Sam Jackson in everything and anything. I think he's actually a great actor, but I also think he knows how to play that character that he does. But this movie, I think, sets him on that track. And I think in a weird way where Sam Jackson has kind of repeated characters like this, Quentin Tarantino has done everything to avoid casting Sam Jackson in a character like this again and also kind of doing the same sort of tropes that he does in this film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Sam Jackson's performance in Django Unchained, for example, is one of the most astonishing, daring performances I've ever seen. Absolutely. And I think what I've been untying in the last viewing of Pulp Fiction is maybe maybe because this comes so hand in hand with how young I was when I saw it, the fact that when I saw this movie, I just assumed every single character in it was cool. Right. You know, and I think in a lot of ways he thinks every character is also pretty cool. I
2: mean, by the way, that's the recurring line in the movie. Are we cool? Are we cool? Everyone is asking, are we cool?
0: But I do think when I watch it now, it's clearer to me that, say, Vincent Vega is not that cool. He's Mm -hmm. at least not as cool as Samuel L. Jackson.
2: You're right. Vincent Vega is not cool. I think the suit does a lot more work for Vincent Vega. As being cool than when you see his personality. And I think, you know, that gift that goes around of him looking around backwards and forwards, you know, when he's in uh, Marcellus's house, like you see him maybe for being a little bit more dumb now where back in the day I was like, maybe he's the guy that you identify with more.
0: Yeah, although maybe I thought he was smart because I didn't know what a quarter pounder with cheese was called in Amsterdam. I mean, I'm going to play that scene just to get in to start playing scenes. But I will say, I had the hardest time pulling clips for this because I kept thinking to myself, "Ah, everybody knows this one too well. Everybody knows this one too well. I mean, everybody knows every clip in this film so well. What was harder for me is finding moments of clips that I felt like were actually revealing to the characters. And, and it started to make me think like, oh, maybe I need to just make peace and accept of the fact that these are superficial characters without the depth. I think he writes now. And just enjoy them for that, which, okay. But let's play the Big Mac clip.
3: But You know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little different. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just just there. It's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a you little know, paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a... Uh, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris. They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call it, Big Mac? Well, big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac, <laughs> <laughs> What do they call it, Waffle? I don't know, I didn't go on a Burger King.
0: I love the way Sam Jackson says le bigameca in in, uh, the French accent. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, God, that's been in my brain, rattling around my brain for two and a half decades, the way he says le bigameca.
2: Can I ask you a question about John Travolta in this movie? I don't know if I think he's that great. And it's a very different point of view that I had than when I saw it originally. I feel like he's definitely doing some sort of accent here some sort of put on on his voice. And then in other scenes, it's not there. It's more John Travolta. And I feel like, you know, when we talk about John Travolta now doing these crazy performances, I feel like this movie is kind of splitting the difference of it. I love, I love that scene. I love the scene in Jackrabbit Slims. I guess what I'm saying is I don't know if this character is as good as I remember it.
0: I mean, I'm going to back you up because you know what startled me this time is thinking okay, he's a big pothead and okay, he's on heroin for a lot of this movie and he never feels like he's on heroin to me. Right. And I mean, he apparently tried to do some sort of practice for it. He was told that being on heroin is like, quote, being drunk on tequila while relaxing in a hot bath. Yes. But in all of his scenes where he's, you know, high apparently with Uma Thurman, he doesn't seem that high to me. Maybe I don't know how long a heroin high lasts, but I think that they he's both high as he drives over there and there's a tiny bit that you see in the car, not so much in his performance.
2: I think there's a little bit of this kind of high conversation that's going on between them, because she's just like done two lines, but she also kind of feels more pilled out, even though she's doing coke. There's a there's a weird energy between the two of them. I think on this rewatch, what I really was impressed with were the relationships. And you're seeing all these different types of couples. And it's a very astute reading of different, relationships you know the ones where you finish each other's sentences and that's like Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth or the one that's a little bit more like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf they love each other but they also get into really intense fights and that's Bruce Willis and his girlfriend and you know this date that or this quasi date that Vincent has with uh Mia it's sort of like finding this person you really connect with and you know maybe it's you know it's your best friend's girl you know so you can't really have this relationship i just kind of feel like he's kind of playing in this world of, you know, very archetypical kind of relationships.
0: I mean, I love that you pointed that out because that's what really stuck out to me too on this watch is, you know, the violence, when the violence here comes, it just comes. There's not really even tension about the violence. You're not like, oh no, he has a gun. Is he going to get away? Except for maybe the the Maynard and Zed scene. Other than that, it's sort of like violence. It's abrupt. It's shocking. Here we go. But the relationships are where all the tension is coming from in the film. You know, the relationships are where I'm worried this person's going to get mad, we have to do this before here, how do I handle this scene with you? The whole, the, the whole moment with like Butch and Fabian, where he finds out she left the watch at home, and he apologized to her because he feels like he didn't tell her clearly enough, but then he's... When he gets in the car, he starts getting mad again because he's alone. But watching him try to have a good relationship with Fabian, try not to scream at her as much as he really wants to in that scene. But he throws the
2: TV. I he mean, does throw yeah. the TV.
0: But then he tries to kind of calm down, settle mm-hmm. down, talk to her nicely. And that's where Quentin Tarantino seems the most interested. I mean, there are so many couples in this movie. You got Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. You have Butch and Fabian. You've got Quentin Tarantino and his unseen Bonnie, who gets her own title card because yeah. she's such a big presence that we never see. You have Lance and Jody, the drug dealing couple, and even, even if you want to say it, um, Vincent Vega and Mia, all of these five negotiations happening. All of these people living out tense scenes while being as concerned about what the other person is going to think about them. And I think it's a really interesting way to structure this because a lot of the imitators of Pulp Fiction were just, here's a bunch of guys and a bunch of guns and a couple hot chicks right. and dance. And they didn't get that it was about the negotiations within the scenes between the two people.
2: Well, I mean, and the one relationship that we're kind of leaving out is the one we just played, which is Vincent Vega and Jules. I mean, that is a couple going through a breakup. You know, really it is. I mean, Jules is the only character that really grows in this entire movie. Like he, you know, sees the light or whatever, and he's going to change his ways. But you're watching this couple break up and, you know, it's... And as you see in the end of the movie, now Vincent's alone, and that's why he gets killed. You know, arguably, if if Jules didn't leave him, he probably would still be alive.
0: That's really true. I mean, let's listen to their first fight about it. Oh, Their first fight where they're realizing they're going to have to break up.
3: We should be fucking dead, man. I know. We was lucky. No, 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 no. That shit wasn't love. Yeah, maybe. This
0: was divine intervention. You know what divine intervention is?
3: I think so. That means that God came down from heaven and stopped the bullets? That's right. That's exactly what it means. God came down from heaven and stopped these motherfucking bullets. I think it's time for us to leave, Jules. Don't do that. Don't fucking blow this shit off. What just happened here was a fucking miracle. Chill, Jules. This shit happens. Wrong. Wrong. This shit doesn't just happen. Do you want to continue this theological discussion in a car? Or in a jailhouse with the cops.
2: We should be fucking dead, my friend. What happened here was a miracle, and I
3: want you to fucking acknowledge it. All right, it was a miracle.
0: I love the way that conversation is even structured because it reminds me of couple fights. I need you to acknowledge the emotion that I'm feeling. That's couples therapy kind of talk.
2: Exactly. That's why I think it's really—I just got my head wrapped around this whole idea, and it's so interesting to think of him as a guy who hasn't had a relationship, but be so adept at visualizing very different relationships. They're not all idealized. They're not like it's here's the relationship where things go south. Here's the one where we all are in agreement. I, and I love that ability to kind of key in on characters. And I know I said earlier, like it feels like a lot of this is coming from the mind of Quentin Tarantino, but I think the situations and the points of view are a precursor to where he grows as a filmmaker and creates these really fleshed out characters that feel incredibly unique.
0: It's true. And I feel like one of the characters in this movie that gets kicked on a little bit is Fabian in these couple scenes. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Fabian with the pot belly with the whole thing – I mean, people have always kind of said that that middle section of the film, if there is a slowest middle section, it's that Butch's story comes in with the watch mm-hmm. and it continues on for 40 minutes of Fabian. But I was rewatching the scene where Fabian sees Bruce Willis when he's come back. He's been through the whole gimp trauma. He has um, Zed's motorcycle and he pulls up and he's like, we need to go. And I feel like a lot of people were like at the time were like, oh, she's so annoying. Why is she asking all these questions? Why can't she just be cool and get on the motorcycle? But she's kind of asking the questions that I think a human being would be asking in this scene. And I admire her for that, and I admire this scene for existing for that reason.
3: Come on, honey!
1: Where did you get this motorcycle?
3: It's not a motorcycle, baby. It's a chopper. Come on, let's go.
1: What happened to my Honda?
3: I'm sorry, baby. I had to crash that Honda. Will you come on now, please? Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. No, no, I I might have broken my nose. There's no biggie. Come on, hop on. Uh, Baby, please, we got, honey, we got to hit the fucking road. Get on. I'm sorry. Come here, come here. I'm sorry. Mm. I'm so sorry. You were gone so long, I started to think dreadful thoughts. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. I didn't mean to worry. Everything's fine. How was your breakfast? It was good. Did you get the pancakes? The no, blueberry pancakes? I didn't
0: have blueberry pancakes. I had to get buttermilk. Are um, so you sure know, you're okay?
3: Honey, since I left you, is, this has been without a doubt the single weirdest fucking day in my life. Come on, hop on. I'll tell you all about it. Come on, get on. Gotta go, gotta go. Come on. Whose motorcycle is this? <sighs> it's a chopper, baby. Whose
1: chopper
2: is this? <sighs> Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. You know, I agree with you. I appreciated this relationship a lot more in this viewing. I think I also appreciated it after watching Who's the Raid of Virginia Woolf and the similarities of love, but also frustration and anger. And there's one line in that that scene that I just love. He's like, "I had to crash that Honda, baby. I had to crash that Honda," <laughs> which is such a funny way of saying it. uh and, you know, Bruce Willis, who I think is an interesting guy because here's a guy at the height of, you know, his fame. You know, this is Bartles and James, Bruce Willis. You know, this is, you know, he's been on Moonlighting. He's the star of movies. Oh, di- he's
0: had a lot of flops right before this. Oh,
2: really? Okay. I mean,
0: Paramount among them,
2: Hudson Hawk. But I think he's still like the biggest actor in this film, right? Like he's yeah. the real marquee name in the sense of he's the big budget guy coming down to the indie world.
0: Yeah, I think I think his name being attached to the film got the film another $11 million to put towards marketing, to put towards everything. Well, because
2: the film only cost 8.5. Yeah, yeah. So and I think so, they got
0: 11 right up front from international sales because wow. Bruce Willis was in it. And
2: that, I,
0: I think this is one of my first Bruce Willis movies, to be honest, and I had such a huge crush on him.
2: I mean, this is kind of the perfect Bruce Willis, but it's a little bit more cocky than the more – um, vulnerable, diehard Bruce Willis, um, as someone who is a Bruce Willis consort. But, you know, there's a world in which Bruce Willis didn't play this part. It was going to be Matt Dillon, um, which I thought was an interesting choice as well. And I could see Matt Dillon doing this part actually really well. And you could see from Quentin Tarantino's tastes and, you know, what he likes that that might have been the more. Quentin Tarantino way to go
0: you know I could see Matt Dillon as an MMA fighter before I could see him as a boxer
2: you think that Bruce Willis seems like a box? I mean he seems older than what he would be in this moment I mean I don't know maybe I'm wrong I, I I see Matt Dillon as being like a low rent boxer
0: really I think Matt Dillon has such a fragile looking face Huh, interesting. Like, how would you survive in there? Maybe I'm just picturing early 80s Matt Dillon, who's, like, skinny. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't have really instant recall of what Matt Dillon looked like. And then maybe he hulked out. I think
2: we're more like something about Mary Matt Dillon. This is, like, a couple years before that.
0: Also, I love how in this first scene in the hotel room where we get to know Fabian and Bruce, they have that really fun edit where she's brushing her teeth goodnight, and then it cuts to her brushing her teeth in the morning. Mm. And that's just such a lovely little Sally Menke touch. You know, Sally Menke edited all of his films, and I think – It's just fantastic here. She does fun things like that. There's transitions that are really old school almost, the kind of vignette black with a black hole opening things. Yeah. It's not just abrupt. She's playing, and I enjoy that.
2: I know we asked the people who listen to the show what they think uh, was in the suitcase. Um, I know I teased that I was going to tell you what I think is in the suitcase. Do you have a theory on what's in the suitcase?
0: No, and I don't want to know. Really? Uh Uh-uh.
2: Oh, I'm going to tell you my theory. Okay, Can I tell you? My theory is it's rock and roll. (laughs) And this is a theory that I heard passed around to me, and then I realized it was actually something that was passed around on the internet. And I did a little research. Okay, so Marcellus represents the origin of rock music in America. Blues, Motown, Soul. Jules is Chuck Berry. Vincent is Elvis They go get the briefcase back because the nerdy white guys are trying to steal it. Okay, maybe they represent greedy record producers that profited off of it. And the reason why that guy unloads a gun at them and is unable to hit them is because legends of music can never die and they will always be around forever. And Jules realizes this and he realizes that he's fighting a pointless fight Uh, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny happen to be British, and they also try to take the briefcase. They represent the British invasion. The British invasion was completely influenced by the blues and older pop music. Jules lets them leave with the money but keeps his bad motherfucker wallet, which shows that they can steal and be influenced by older music, but they can't take the style. They have to come up with their own style. And, uh, And then Butch is this boxer who is being told by Marcellus to throw a fight, but Butch represents a new and interesting kind of rock music that continues to come out, and Marcellus doesn't like this. Butch doesn't throw the fight, but he runs away.
0: Butch is Uh, dressed like Kenny
2: Loggins. (laughs) But they both get captured by red nicks while a country song is playing, and the rapists represent country music. Country music stole a lot from the blues and other black music, and this is shown by them raping Marcellus, and then Butch has a chance to escape, but decides to go back and save him out of respect. Marcellus agrees to let Butch live, and there's a truce and they go their separate ways. Marcellus accepts that there will always be new music and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And the watch represents that as time moves on, more new music will continue to be made and they'll all be influenced by what came before them. And that is the theory that I love the most about the briefcase. And that is something that I found on Reddit, a fully blown out thing by a BH Man.
0: I mean, this theory holds water. if like after Vincent and Jules give Marcellus the suitcase, he just goes and buries it under a bunch of concrete. He's like, that's it. We're done. We're done here. I just heard Nirvana. It's over. We need, <laughs> now is the time in which
2: the true music of, of California, the Dre's, will take over. You know, it's so funny you say Nirvana because this movie doesn't read to me as a movie that takes place in the 90s, but yet it does. I mean, there's nothing that doesn't set it in the 90s, but there is nothing about this movie that feels. 90s to me, in that's true. It. it
0: feels 90s to me only in a cyclical sense, in that I remember everybody dressing exactly like Uma Thurman and using that makeup. Yeah, and so it feels very 90s because I look at her pants and I'm like, oh, they're so 90s. They're so cute, <laughs> but only because those pants happened because of this movie in part. I mean, but there's a lot of stuff that actually just feels like we're living in today, though. Mm-hmm. When they're talking about you can get beer at movie theaters, I'm like, yeah, we can kind of do that. You yeah. can get weed everywhere. I'm like, yeah, we kind of live in that world. A $5 shake sounds a little underpriced at this moment.
2: I know. A $5 shake to seem out of the norm was shocking to me. It's like, oh, that's there's a $15 milkshake at Walt Disney World. So, yeah. But yeah. What I
0: like about that is this is a Quentin Tarantino who's maybe four years out of the video store at this point, mm-hmm. three years out of the video store. So I like the idea that he remembers how much things cost when you're making a minimum wage. Yeah, I actually want to play the milkshake scene for a bazillion reasons. Let's just play it. What do you think?
3: I think it's like a wax museum with a pulse. Hi, I'm Buddy. What can I get you? Let's see, steak, steak, steak. Oh yeah, oh, the Douglas Kirk steaks. Have that. How do you want that cooked? Run to a crisp or bloody as hell? Bloody as hell, and, oh yeah, look at this, vanilla Coke. What about you, Peggy Sue? I'll have the Derwood Kirby Burger, Bloody, and
0: a $5 shake.
3: How do you want that shake? Martin and Lewis or Amos and Amber?
0: Martin and Lewis.
3: Did you just order a $5 shake?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That's a shake, that's milk and ice cream
0: last i heard
3: that's five dollars you don't put bourbon in or nothing
1: no just checking
3: i'll be right back with your drinks
1: Hey, everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinas. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary. Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy fifth. Fifteenth anniversary! Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another fifteen years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Bruba, go do. That's right, Bruba, they should go do it. Yes, they should, Bruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Bruba, go do. Yes, Ruba go, go do. That's right, Bruba, go do. <laughs>
2: I love this interaction, but what I really am blown away by, and especially now, is Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah. I mean, I want to
0: go there so bad. I was like,
2: how come no one has ever done this? And then I realized, oh, we have done that. That was, you know, kind of at this point in our. Lifespan where there were Planet Hollywood's and Hard Rock Cafe's and Mars 2112. And there's still a rain
0: 2112. I never heard of that. Oh, that
2: was in New York. Uh, And then there's like the Rainforest Cafe, all these very, you know, themed out places. And this is like the perfect Quentin Tarantino themed place, but it's done so well. And I was watching it. I was going, how much did that cost? Because the movie is so simple. It's a very simple movie. Uh, It's a low budget film, but it looks like it cost, you know, $30 million. They spent the most amount of money on Jackrabbit Slim's $150,000 to design it. And, you know, you have uh, Steve Buscemi here in the scene, which is a great kind of callback. There's a couple of...
0: Unrecognizable. He looks so handsome when he looks down and he has a ton of hair.
2: I love it. And And he's Buddy Holly. And you get, for me, as a Reservoir Dogs fan before I saw Pulp Fiction, it's fun to see all these characters. It was sort of like the way that Preston Sturges brings his, you know, gang of people into each film. It's like Harvey Keitel... Was When he pops up, it's great. When Steve Buscemi pops up, it's great. And obviously Tim Roth.
0: Yeah, I mean, it being that expensive really explains that lovely shot where when Vince Omega comes in, he walks all the way around the perimeter really slowly, taking mm-hmm. in all the tables, taking in everything to get back basically where he kind of started from Yeah, to sit down at the table, just to let us all soak it in. I mean, I want to say also that something about Mia, especially when Mia is so quick to volunteer for the dance competition... Mia kind of reminds me of like the sort of girl who would go up at a karaoke night and sing a super ironic song and nobody would think it was funny. She's yeah. like up there being like, I'm a Barbie girl, and everyone just goes to the bar to get a drink.
2: <laughs> you know they didn't win that competition, though.
0: I've heard this rumor, and I've heard the disproof of it. Okay. I mean, supposedly there's a little bit on the radio where, yes. they, where they, they say that Jack Rabbit Slims is looking for the lost trophy. Yeah. I went to that scene. I cranked up the volume as high as I could. I couldn't hear it.
2: Let's take a look right now.
0: Nope, they're talking about $5 shakes as a selling point. All right, but it's not there. Although
2: I do urban like myth urban disproved. Myth.
0: But I do like how much dance bonds them together. How the edit after the dance scene is the two of them dancing into her front door. Mm. You see that this connection that like them actually getting up there has made them start caring about each other more. That dance really breaks through the bond. I also, as a big footed girl, I really respect Uma Thurman's big feet. I meant to Google how big they were. I'm sure there's a billion sites that will tell me. I'll just do it now. Hold on. Oh, okay, here it is. Wiki Feet says she has an 11. That's bigger than me. I really respect that.
2: (laughs) But that dance sequence is really interesting because here's John Travolta coming back to do a dance, which seems so like, whoa, you got John Travolta to dance. But as someone who's just watched, look who's talking two or now, whatever the fuck the sequel was. He dances in that too. It wasn't that rare to get him to dance. I think he dances in every movie. I'm surprised he didn't dance in The People versus O.J. Simpson. If there's a reason to dance, he'll find it.
0: You know what? That's beautiful though, isn't it?
2: Absolutely.
0: You know, this dancing, a lot of people say that it was because of Travolta himself that Quentin wanted to make him dance. But the true story is, of course, that like Quentin was just really, really influenced by the French New Wave. And this was his ode to A Band Apart. And I think a lot of people might know that intellectually, but I wanted to play a bit of that dance scene from A Band Apart just to hear the groovy music. I mean, apparently, uh, John Travolta won a twist contest when he was eight years old. And he still knew all these cool dances, so while they were doing the dance number, he taught Uma all these dances, and then Tarantino would just yell out what he wanted them to do. He'd be like, Hitchhiker! Batman.
2: It's a very unique dance. I don't know if this it's an award-winning dance, but but they seem so in sync with each other. And I think this is like the most interesting relationship in the film because you're watching these two people. He saves her life, you know? And I love that deliberation that he's having in the bathroom, like, I just gonna have a drink and I'm gonna leave and it's gonna be fine. And he's just about getting up the courage to even go, I don't even need the drink, I'm gonna go home. And it's intercut with her you know, doing that insane heroin. And it's such a great moment to see that's a reaction. That's a human reaction. You talk about a movie with not many like real reactions. When he actually cares about someone, the reaction is quite big. And I also would say that Bruce Willis, you see a reaction on him, and you see how he interacts with his girlfriend. But more importantly, when he's leaving, you see this moment where he like realizes, like, I can't leave him down there. And Talking about Marcellus now. Yeah. And I'm just saying, like, so there are moments where these characters, when their heart is in it, they care. But we're dealing with characters who are heartless. Yeah, I, I mean, think the-
0: Vincent's complaining about having uh, somebody keyed his car. And he's willing to crash the car to try to make Uma Thurman get to Eric Stoltz's house a little yeah. bit faster. By There's- the way,
2: who do you think keyed it?
0: I heard this rumor. Okay. They say it's Bruce Will.
2: Yeah, because they have that little interaction in the bar.
0: Yeah, like when they're, yeah, earlier on, when they're staring each other down. And by the way, what I like about that shot is The lighting in this bar that they're at is just crazy. I think it's Bruce Willis's face is all red and John Travolta's face becomes all white. And they look like they're printed as though they're on the cover of a Pulp Fiction book. You know, Mm. they have that harsh, like, three-color printing look that I really admire. That's also the same thing you see in the title, you know, which the title is so lunatic, the credits here. Oh, I I love it. Pulp Fiction in one font with yellow and red and then having the white letters in a totally different font of the cast – go over it and having Pulp Fiction get bigger and shrinker and blah, 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 blah. And it makes it almost impossible to read. It's such a strange, weird, enjoyable to me design.
2: No, I love it. It reminded me of like Richard Bachman books. You know, it's like the books that you would look at in the bookstore. You know, they had this like very bold title design with that music underneath it. It just, it, everything in this movie is a choice well made. And I'm sick and tired of these Indie movies that are dramedies that aren't funny and aren't dramatic. I want to see bold choices in independent film. And I feel like this made me really nostalgic for that. Like directors who don't have a lot of money, but are doing a lot, you know, and, and pushing it to every point that they can, not just making it because it's easy. And there's something really interesting I wanted to play for you. This is uh, home video footage of Quentin Tarantino on the set directing Bruce Willis and Bruce Willis kind of seeing the future of movies. So take a listen.
3: Someday in the next five years, someone's gonna take one, one of these and make a feature film. Oh, I know. Almost did it with with. Uh Bob Roberts. Oh, yeah, 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 no, I know. I, I agree with you. Some some kids, some 17-year-old kid's going to make this killer, drop-dead, poorly-lit video movie that is going to be the hippest fucking thing, and then there's going to be 100 Oh, I agree with you. They're going to cost about 60000 bucks.
0: He's not too wrong. Although I think right now, if you want Bruce Willis in your film, his current asking price is one million dollars a day. So-
2: yeah, but I think Bruce Willis makes an exception. Like, you know, he pops up in a lot of cool stuff. I mean, I think when you're doing like the Bruce Willis cameo, like the Sylvester Stallone cameo, you get that one million dollars a day, but you get the guy who's gonna also do like Moonrise Kingdom and, you know, not ask for any of that money.
0: That's true. I mean, I think Pulp Fiction has been good and bad for independent film. You know, it is very good in that people started to pay even more attention to it and be like, yeah. "This is where the cool stuff is going to happen." I want to keep my eye on independent film right now. But I also do think it set up expectations for independent film that independent film couldn't always master from that on. Oh, right. you make a film for eight million dollars and it'll make over a hundred million dollars in right. America, and everybody was looking for that and thinking, "Well, I need." guns and I need a movie star and I think people stopped taking a ton of chances for a little bit I think the types of independent films that were starting to exist narrowed down a little
2: well you get into this groove where you start to chase the money whereas you're not chasing the talent like I think with Quentin Tarantino no one expected it to make as much money I mean it, it like this movie all right. Made 213 worldwide. I mean, this my big fat Greek wedding. These are anomalies. Like they're not. They're not even what you can expect from a, a regular film. It just sort of like it captures the right tone. But one person did that great, and then. You have to just find the other voice, and we have to cultivate that. And I think that, like somebody like Ari Aster and A twenty four, they're doing that. They're they're not going after what's a hit. They're just cultivating voices, and if they can get it in the right position where people can respond to it, great. But if not, they they release a bunch. It's like it's like Blumhouse for independent film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I feel like. A twenty four. I love them so much, and they spend so much money on marketing, and I get nervous that they can't live like this forever. I want to protect them.
2: But I think all they need is to keep on winning Academy Awards and keep on having one or two big giant hits, because that will keep them open. You know, it's.
0: I mean, to that level, I think there's somebody really unexpected who connects pulp fiction to Ari Aster's new film to yeah. to Ari Aster in general, and that is Danny DeVito.
2: Yes, you know, We
0: talk a lot about the other producers of, of of Pulp Fiction, which we absolutely should. I mean, people here are fascinating, like Lauren Spender. I mean, a former flamenco dancer who winds up being like, I'm going to find the movie for this and I know how to get somebody who can get to Harvey Keitel for Reservoir Dogs and I'm going to make your career. Yeah, you know, That's incredible. Or Roger Avery, who gets elbowed out a little bit from getting the full credit that he feels like he deserved for the script. Which and is by the way, brutal. that's
2: interesting because I think as a kid, I never really realized that Like, Roger Avery wrote sections of this movie. I mean, he wrote the Bonnie section, which is one of the best sections. That's the section with the wolf.
0: Yeah. But back to Danny DeVito, though. I mean, Danny DeVito, he executive produced this. He really thought that there was something to Quentin Tarantino, and he— an eye on it. He tried to get it made. He couldn't get it made in his way, but he was like, I want to stay attached. I want to help you make this yeah. film. And he did that for Reality Bites, Aaron Brockovich, Man on the Moon. Super Troopers. Super Troopers. Danny DeVito has kind of been this guy behind the scenes who has really, really, really good taste. And Danny DeVito was one of the first people who really took an interest in Ari Aster. Yeah. It helped him get it start when he was a short filmmaker. And so I love this secret history of Hollywood as seen through Danny DeVito making stuff happen.
2: I love it. And I mean, we'd be remiss not to mention the fact that Miramax were really passionate about supporting these types of voices and and putting the marketing behind it. And that means, you know, in the Academy Awards and getting the attention it deserved. Obviously, we understand now how criminal that system was uh, on a, on a few different levels. But, you know, this is a person who is making phone calls and getting big-name stars to do things that they wouldn't normally do and helping everyone in the space. You know, it's it, it's uh, it's a complicated legacy for the, the Miramax Weinstein company, but they definitely were a big proponent of independent film and interesting independent film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to play what happens when this film wins at Cannes. Uh, the award is presented, actually, I think this is kind of interesting, by Clint Eastwood. This is a Clint Eastwood even talking about how the jury went, why the jury picked this film.
3: Then it was, I'm I amazed it was the European guys on the jury that really started jumping, turned around, a couple of them turned around and said, that's the picture, that's the picture of this festival. And I, and I didn't jump, I was kind of still weighing things in my mind, but I said, yeah, boy, it's, it's definitely interesting. And uh, it was exciting, and it it came at a time we needed a little excitement too. It came right after a couple that were uh, lulling there, Uh, so it uh, it was uh, it was refreshing.
0: As Quentin Tarantino is walking up, a French woman starts protesting. What she's yelling over and over again is, but what shit, fucking shit, but what shit, fucking shit, over and over and over and over again. I didn't, when I watched this the first time, I was like, does he understand French? Does he know what's happening? And I think he does enough because then this is what he says.
3: I never expect to win anything at any festival I've gone to where a jury has to decide because I don't make the kind of movies that kind of bring people together. And you got to find the one movie that that brought them all together. I kind of make movies that kind of split people apart.
0: I like that, split people apart, which I think he's done more and more so nowadays. I think he's, like, really gone into that. And in a way, I respect his later films. I respect, and I've wrestled with this a lot, but I do respect Death Proof, for example, for being just such, his devout love of car movies, of girl gang movies, and figuring out, like, the one little ingredient to... You know know there's those cakes where you – like the king cakes at New Year's where you put a little baby in there? But imagine like he's making this cake that looks just like a normal cake. But instead of a plastic baby, it's like a real baby. Baby, I don't know. Like that's a little
2: fetus in there? Terrible oh. analogy. But, no, it's a great analogy. But he's analogy. going
0: for this element of surprise that you can't tell. He knows the he knows the recipe so well that he just wants to screw with you in a pointed way because he knows what it's like to sit in the audience.
2: Well, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think that that's what I love about him growing as a filmmaker and making Jackie Brown after this. After Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, I was expecting a certain type of Tarantino film, and Jackie Brown was not it. And I've come to really love Jackie Brown, but it's taken me some time to get away from it because I was looking at it as just make the thing that I want you to make more of. And I think he's very conscious of of subverting not only his instincts, but the audience's instincts of him. And then going, and you know what? You're not even gonna wanna see this and I'm gonna make you love it. Like he brought back a Western in a way that no one had done it or done a World War II movie in a way that no one had done it. He killed Hitler. He has this alternative history. You know, we have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood now that, you know, is even playing within the world of the Manson family. And Bruce Lee, like, he is constantly serving up what he finds interesting.
0: Yeah, while messing with us. He he kills Hitler because he knows that Hitler doesn't get killed and that we're going to spend most of this movie thinking – But you can't kill 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 Hitler, right? That didn't happen. And I think that's what's been kind of fun about watching his revisionist history movies and putting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in that list of of revisionist history movies, is he wants to figure out how to surprise you even when he's giving you exactly what he thinks you know that you ordered. Which is never it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is not my favorite Tarantino movie, although I tend to find that with his films I have this like pattern of wanting it to be so, so, so something that I'm always let down the first time I see it. And I like it a lot better the second time I see
2: it. Well, I think that he falls in that same category for me as Kubrick and the Coen brothers. Their movies with age only get better. Like, and I do believe that you come in with heavy expectations. And that's not saying that I don't love a Coen brothers film when I see it the first time, but I love a Coen brothers film like on the third time more than I did the first. And And I think that that is a sign of a great filmmaker, too, that there's so much there that you can keep on looking at and finding and and seeing. It's almost like you need to have a discussion like this after a movie like that and then go back and watch it again, which is the way that I saw Pulp Fiction. I think I saw this movie three times in the theater.
0: Yeah, I mean, although there is, and I think you'll agree with me on this, there is one thing in Pulp Fiction I think has not aged very well at all, Mm -hmm. that has aged terribly And that, to me, it was really surprising going back and seeing the original reviews, how few people even mentioned it, and how it just didn't seem to register, and that is the use of the N-word in the film. Yeah. It did register with a few critics, and I will read some of them, but the majority of people didn't really bring it up, or said things like, Mr. Tarantino's audacity also extends to profane, street-smart conversation peppered with racial epithets, slurs turned toothless by the fact that the film itself is so completely and amicably integrated.
2: And I have a lot to say on this. I'm actually glad you're bringing this up because, you know, this is something that Quentin Tarantino has been dinged with numerous times. You know, he got in the trouble with Crimson Tide when he was like punching up that script and just dropping a lot of N-bombs in there. And when I watched it, that scene with Quentin Tarantino, I think is a scene where you really hear it. and Where
0: Jimmy's talking about dead storage.
2: Yeah. And I I, I really was like, oh, huh, Wow. It really is something that honestly is shocking.
0: Yeah, I think it honestly is shocking. Like we were talking about what's still shocking in this movie and that, and also the other racial epithets, there's a lot of them mm-hmm. in this of all different sorts.
2: I mean, it's a movie also that is, like you said, profane, 265 uses of the word fuck. And, and I feel like it may be a button that he's pushing, like how far can I push it? And it feels to me, especially in that scene with Lance, that he's like, dare me not to say it. Like it almost feels like he knows that it's not right. And he's like, what are you going to do about it? Like, I feel like there is a almost a defensiveness to it. Maybe that's me being a Quentin Tarantino defender because I do have problems with this. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying it it feels deliberate. Do you feel that? Or
0: Yeah, I mean, he, in interviews at the time, he said it was deliberate, that he was overusing it to sort of neutralize its power and to try right. to make it just another curse word, which is something that I do believe that he believes, but I also believe that he did just want to be daring. I mean, to me, I've thought about this a lot, and where I feel is that I think the N-word here, and the other words, but the N-word, I think it's just an ugly mistake. I think that the way he uses it, and I'll single out the dead storage scene, I think that the way he uses it there is really callous, and I think it's exploitative, and I think it's really just unnecessary, You know, especially when it's in his own mouth, because the, the line doesn't need it. You know, You could just say dead guy storage, and I think the scene is fine. I don't think you gain anything from using the word there. But I think that what he got in the theaters in 1994 was just sort of this kind of, I don't know, like guilty snort gasp laugh. It's hard to really capture how ironic we all thought we were back then, but this idea of, I
2: can't believe I'm watching something so outrageous. Well, to me, I think one of the things that I'm, struck by in that scene is he's using it so many times, but then when you reveal Bonnie, she's a black woman. And I think it's sort of like, well, look, he can't be racist because his wife is black. And and that feels to me like the most manipulative part of it too. It's like, oh, you're aware of this, but yet you're doing this. It, it, it sits unwell with me across the board.
0: This is Quentin talking to Jamie Foxx about his own childhood and why he felt entitled to use certain words. And the backstory is basically, you know, his mom was sixteen when she had him, when he was a young kid, she was living in an apartment with two roommates. Uh one was black, one was Latinx. And she was dating a lot of men and a lot of the men were black. And he grew up in these surroundings is sort of the backstory. But I'll let him talk about it. We would get up in
3: the, you know on Saturday, we'd watch Soul Train at one. What? You know, and that was you know and it was the seventies. So yeah. we, everything was cracking and also yeah. Like you know, her black boyfriends. You should be going out yeah. with this basketball player or this football yeah. player, yeah. and you know they want to bond with the boy. Yeah. Right. All right. So their way of bonding with me would they take me to downtown L.A. and see black exploitation movies? Are you serious? Yeah, I remember I saw Black Gun with wow. uh, on a date. I, mean, I was on a date. It was like he took me out to have a good time, so he yeah. bought me a football, yeah. and then uh, took me to uh, see Black Gun. All right, with Jim Brown oh, at yeah, this huge ever uh, the the black audience streaming through the yeah. whole damn movie. Like, this shit is great right 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 and black
2: people do talk to the to, yeah. the, to the to the to the screen that's amazing so here you are this and then, kid
3: and even my, you know and even but even when i went to school it was like a, it was a private school that by the time i got there yeah it, it was one of those private schools that uh not a rich rich private mm-hmm. school but one of those private schools that actually didn't let black folks in wow. until like 10 years earlier however wow. once they they let them in, they took over. Yeah, you know how we do? Yeah.
0: You know how we do, we get up in there, yeah. we gonna take it so, over. So again baby. in the
3: seventies, you know, it was like every you know, almost everybody, you know, it was pretty much all black except for me. Wow. And so, you know, I I grew up at the height of black culture in right. the seventies, immersed right. in it. Right. And I talked that way. Wow. And I had the permission to talk that yeah, way, yeah. but I didn't ask for permission, yeah. I just did it. Just did and it. it was just
0: it was just the way it was. So I feel like To him, he felt specifically entitled to use the word. But, you know, as a white girl who wasn't born then, who didn't know any of these people, I don't feel like I'm the person to weigh in on whether or not that works as an excuse. But I think the problem is, is that even if you believe that all of this reconciles to Quentin Tarantino personally, and that this is just like another example of him putting his brain on the screen, which is what all of Pulp Fiction is, it's his brain on the screen... I think that the issue is that there are definitely white audience members there in the theater who thought that because he did it and because it was cool that Pulp Fiction gave them permission to do it too, and I think that's awful. And I think what's also frustrating to me is I really do genuinely believe that he wants to be a positive force for black actors and for black voices, and I think that he has written great star parts for black actors. I think he's been very smart in the way that he casts his films, and I think that he does want his films, especially now, especially films like Django Unchained, for example, to confront racism the way that he really sees it. And I think he has matured. And I think he uses the N-word differently now, which is, you know, when a character in Django Unchained uses it, he wants you to hate that character. Right. But I think when Jimmy uses it here in Pulp Fiction, he wants you to like Jimmy. And
2: well, so and I Jimmy think- is saying it in the presence of a black man. Mm-hmm. Uh It's presented like, oh, he's not saying this thing. This is Jules' friend. Jules called him up. They are friends. They have this conversation. Jules is not upset with him. And he's, like I said before, and he's married to a black woman. I think it's troubling. I think whenever you make art, you are really held to a higher standard because not that you have to understand how your audience is going to take it and you're not responsible for it. Same way that Spike Lee wasn't responsible for anyone's actions or the way they were blaming him for that. You have to know what you're saying and why you're saying it, you know, because there isn't that Jamie Foxx interview attached to Pulp Fiction. It's just this.
0: Exactly. And Jimmy's a likable guy sort of otherwise. I have to say that to I found him to be
2: it. a less likable guy this time. And maybe it's my own awareness of of, you know, white privilege and the status that I've had in my life that I'm now, you know, as a kid was not that aware that, you know, I was probably much more on the Quentin Tarantino side. Like, yeah, he's trying to take down the power of the word, but now I see it in a different way. It's like
0: when you're a very young kid and you learn about freedom of speech or or you're like a grown ass old Republican man who just learned about freedom of speech.
2: Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a thorny subject and, uh, and I, I do agree with you. I don't think it ages well. You know, Amy, I feel like we've been talking a long time. We haven't even touched upon some of the big, you know, big moments of this film, the Christopher Walken monologue, the, you know, the idea of the gimp, you know, these things that are still so huge. But I feel like we are at that point where we have to kind of push everything together and kind of wrap it up um, because I think we talked about some of the important stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, watching the Walken Watch beach so close to when we saw Deer Hunter was fascinating. You know, Paul, I haven't tortured you yet this episode, so how about the Plump Fiction trailer?
2: what the plump fiction trailer pulp no. fiction it's not
1: reservoir dogs Ugh.
2: no it's
1: not natural born killers
3: you got that
1: it's plump fiction a film of tender romance
3: <laughs> how do i look
1: nice
2: Oh, boy, where did you even find this? ...and hard-hitting action.
1: Club Fiction! It's a parody.
3: She's got a tattoo! It's actually a little map, see? It points away to the nearest burger
1: world. It's a movie!
3: It's all messed up. It doesn't make any sense. I know! I love it! You do? Who cares what comes when? That's so mainstream. As long as it's bloody and violent.
2: Oh, boy.
3: Maxwell, we're going to shoot this.
2: They're so in <laughs> love with this name, plump fiction. Ew, ew, ew. Um, so, Amy, tell me. Uh, obviously, this movie is beloved. It has this history of being, you know, a quintessential, uh, not only 90s film, but I think uh, film. Were there bad reviews?
0: There was from my beloved, beloved, I love this man so much. I just saw him this weekend. I love him forever. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times. Oh, interesting. Who also bashed Titanic, as you remember.
2: I do indeed. All right.
0: So what's interesting about a lot of the reviews from this period is they're responding as much to the hype as to the film as well. You know, there's a lot of like, oh, my God, we need to talk about this film. Can we talk about it rationally? So that's just the backdrop for some of what's happening in here. So Kenneth Turan says, despite all the attention, this is not the resurrection of anything. Pulp Fiction's anthology of stories about gangster fun and games in Los Angeles does not merit sustained veneration. Because Pulp Fiction is sporadically effective, the temptation to embrace the entire two hours and 29 minutes of Tarantiana is strong. But in truth, this is a noticeably uneven film, both too inward-looking and self-centered in its concerns, and too outward-bound in the way it it strains to outrage an audience, to be successful across the board. And he loves a lot of the dialogue, but then he also calls out a lot of the dialogue. He says there is nevertheless something wearing and repetitive about the film's reliance on shock value and bad boy posturing to maintain our attention. The word tedious has not been used much in describing Pulp Fiction, but there are extended moments where it fits rather too well. So while seeing where Pulp Fiction is coming from is easy, guessing where Quentin Tarantino is headed is more difficult. A gifted mimic who knows how to make lively collages out of movie history, he seems unconcerned that his films feel, feel more like heartless dead ends than an opening to something new and involving. And though in a rare plaintive moment in a recent interview, Tarantino talked of his future and said, quote, I don't just want to be the gun guy. The evidence that he can live without the rush that violence is or the threat that it brings is not convincing.
2: That's really interesting.
0: It is. I mean, and it definitely looked like where he was headed, I think, for a few years, up until Jackie Brown. I think there's three years of being like, what is he doing?
2: Right, that's like in the time of like Four Rooms was being made at that point, right? Because he wanted to be
0: an actor. I mean, I think deep down, somebody who worked with him once said, Tarantino would have walked off one of his own movies if somebody had offered him a sitcom walk-on part. Like he wanted to act so badly.
2: What I think is so interesting is like this generation of filmmakers are very – front-facing to the camera in a way. Like, yes, Coppola makes wine and Scorsese will, you know, do interviews, but these guys put themselves in front of the camera a lot. I mean, Robert Rodriguez... Hosts a whole channel where he is the figurehead of it. You know, Quentin Tarantino is hosting SNL, and even when he like directs an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live and directing CSI, as a Quentin Tarantino directs. It was like it was very much their personality. You know, Kevin Smith is still uh, so much in front of the camera, it, even with his podcast. That they're so they're so much wanting the attention of being the star and the auteur. It's a it's something that I think is very unique to this time.
0: Well, and I think it's very smart because. When you think about Quentin Tarantino's first two films, they got made Reservoir Dogs because Harvey Keitel said yes, and Pulp Fiction got a lot more money because Bruce Willis said yes. And I think Quentin Tarantino especially realized, if I make myself the star, I am the person who gets my own films greenlit. And I think he wanted to put himself forward as a brand and not just be hidden. You know, There's a lot of movies of the 80s that I really love that are of you know, questionable skill, but it's hard to name the directors of them. Like, Who directed, and now I'm going to name a lot of films that I love from the 80s as a child, but, like, who was the director of Troop Beverly Hills, you know, or who was the director of Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead? You know, there's a lot of films that just disappeared where you didn't know who made them. I actually know a little bit about this because I was looking it up recently, but the guy who directed Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead, a movie that I do deeply still love, is the same person who directed everything. He directed... 101 Dalmatians, Mr. Holland's Opus, Three Musketeers, Mighty Ducks. He directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He directed Critters. And nobody knows his name. And I will tell you, it is Stephen Herrick. And I think it's interesting that the, that type of 80s auteur disappeared and Quentin Tarantino was like, I need to sell my own films.
2: But isn't that just the difference of a director for hire and someone who is uh, an auteur? You know, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is just a director for hire. It's like, it 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 doesn't make a difference. 10 people can make that movie. You know, it, it's it's made through a studio system. You know, where here, you know, you talk about Spike Lee, you talk about, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, uh, Jim Jarmusch, Wes Anderson, all these people, they're making things that are uniquely them. You could, and that, I think that's why there's so much hubbub about Tarantino making Star Trek. It's like, what? What do you mean? Like, what is that? Like, what would that even be? Because it would cease to be Star Trek and it would become a Quentin Tarantino movie. He doesn't know how to make don't tell mom the babysitter's dead.
0: That is true. And I guess that's why it was worth it to him to lose his friendship with Roger Avery over being able to say in the credits, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino.
2: So what happened there?
0: I mean, basically the story is just that they worked on this together in Amsterdam with Roger being under of the understanding that it was going to be a co-screenwriting credit. And then at the last minute, Tarantino called him up, or I think Tarantino and Tarantino's people called him up, a couple calls. And they're like, it needs to say written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Wow. And you can get a story by credit. And just pretty much period, the end. And I think it really dinged their friendship, even though Roger Avery was a guy who had known him since the video store days. But that auteur idea, written and directed by, you know?
2: Right, yeah. I mean, (sighs) yeah. Sometimes
0: I I think we sacrifice too much to that.
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, we are in a town that celebrates us. For all the talk of independent film and and pure vision – you know, we want to hear the story of the lone person who did this thing all by himself. And, you know, the Danny DeVitos are in the background. Everyone's in the background because we only want to think of Quentin Tarantino leaving a video store with a script, getting all these actors, making this movie, and doing it all by himself. And, you know, and that's, and that's the, you know, when it works, you're this hero. You're the best person in the world. But that's, I mean, that's a narrative that we love to tell in Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's, no one helped you.
0: Here's to the Danny DeVitos.
2: I agree. Now, Amy, I know the answer to this, but is there Simpsons?
0: There are a bunch of Simpsons. Uh, This is from a Simpsons episode from 1996. It's called 22 Short Films About Springfield. It's an episode where the Simpsons tries to do the intercutting of many characters and seeing everything that happens. And it doesn't put its Pulp Fiction inspiration directly on the line until halfway through. And you get scenes like this one. You have Chief Wiggum. You have Snake the Tattooed Dude. And they're at Herman's Military Antiques, and then Milhouse and his dad come in.
1: As soon as Zed gets here, the party will begin. There he is now. Who are you? Uh,
3: can my son use your bathroom?
1: You gotta say yes! Uh, Okay, but be quick. It's in (laughs) back. Uh,
3: so, uh... Nice store. (laughs) Uh, You know, when I was a kid, this used to be a pet store. (laughs) Yeah. Right over there against that wall, it was the cutest little...
1: Get in that corner. Hey, Dad, can we get this, please? Oh, my gosh. And
0: Milhouse knocks them out with, what do you call that thing, a mace? A A mace. mace. He knocks them out with a mace.
2: I love that. So, Amy, this giant conversation comes down to this. Do you believe this film belongs on the list?
0: It's hard for me to imagine a world where it's not on the list. I would love to imagine a world where Tarantino's 10th film and possibly final film is so great that maybe it takes it off the list. But then again, there's kind of no denying what an impact this had on the style and tone of films ever more after, on the the idea of films with completely nonlinear structures. Although, to be fair, Citizen Kane did it. Yeah. So, you know, it's not totally revolutionary. We got Citizen Kane at number one holding down the fort for like, hey, remember when you can tell a story in all sorts of different parts and the audience has to put it together? This movie is a part of me. And yet I don't know if this movie's long for the world, to be honest.
2: That's really interesting because I feel exactly the opposite. I mean, I think one of the things we always say about this show is, are they really as good as people say? Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch today? And I think that this film does every one of those things its influence is gigantic does it does hold up yes there are sections or little things that didn't age well but as a whole it holds up are they as good as people say yeah and i think we've seen its influence so much that some of the original things that we saw in this movie are now tropes and they feel less original than when we first saw them and i think that's a problem of coming first but that should not be taken against him because I don't think anyone has done it really that much better than Quentin Tarantino. And I think that like, he still sets the bar, like those conversations set the bar and they're so unique. And when I see other people's conversations, it feels like I'm watching people try to do Quentin Tarantino, not be the next Quentin Tarantino, if that makes sense.
0: It does. I mean, I guess I'm just I want to try to make sure I'm not going to be that type of nostalgist that can't let this go. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm really curious to hear from people who were born in the '90s, born in the 2000s, who are just seeing this movie now for the first time. I wonder how this feels to them because I can't really separate myself from this. I feel like even if I was like take it off the list, which it's so low on the list, which I find really interesting. It's too. crazy. Before low. I on watched it, I'd be like, shouldn't it be higher on the list? Now that I watched, I'm like, ah, I feel no amazing. way. I this just, is a want- top
2: 50 movie. For sure. I'll believe
0: it when like a bunch of people who are 17 tell me that. Okay. 18 tell me that.
2: Well, I mean, but then those 17 and 18-year-olds also have to tell you that, you know, Gone with the Wind belongs on this list. You know, it's like we can't just judge this movie because we're familiar with it in the context of that. I mean, there are a lot of movies on this list that don't probably resonate to – People that were born in the 2000s. I mean, how many people in the 2000s have watched Citizen Kane? I think it's a little bit of an unfair thing. I think we're looking at it from the point of view of saying, well, this is of our time. Are we just being, you know, nostalgic for it? But this list is nostalgic for a lot of stuff.
0: I know. I know. I just don't want to be unfair. I just don't want to dish it out to other people's films from their generations and not be able to accept it on my own. I hear you. That's all. And I just, this film is tattooed on my chest. So I'm not a fair person in a lot of ways.
2: All right. Well, this is a very uh, good conversation to have with you. Amy, what is next on the list?
0: It is a little game that Georgia Martha played called Bringing Up Baby.
2: Oh, look at that. Look at that connection. Um, Do you the- think Get the
0: GIMP would be a Georgia Martha game too? Get the gimp.
2: (laughs) They keep a gimp in the closet underneath that uh, shotgun with an umbrella in it? Why not? All right. I love it. Well, Bring a Baby is a Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant film. And it's an interesting one at that because I don't think it's one that people really know. Um, And we wanted to go back to one of our classic questions – What is Bringing Up Baby about? If you've not seen it, give us a call at 747-666-5824, 747-666-5824, and tell us what you think, just based on the title alone, Bringing Up Baby is about. And you know what? If you want to Google the image of the poster, you can do that too, because I don't think it's going to reveal that much. All right. We will talk to you next week for Bringing Up Baby.